Well, let's take our Bibles and turn together to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. If you're using the church Bible, that's page 1006. If you're using the Bible in front of you in the pew. We're coming towards the end of a section of this book, the longest section of the book. After this, it becomes very practical. But up to this point, it's all been dogmatics, what we believe, what, what are the essential elements of the Christian faith that must be believed and confessed by the church. And today is the last sermon in that section. And then from verse 19 to the end, it becomes very practical and personal. We're going to read from verse 11. Let's hear the Word of God. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, or after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who first gave these words to the apostles and prophets, would speak to our hearts that not only is this the Word of God, but we are about to hear you speak to us. Open our minds, we pray, illumine our thinking, and make us, Lord, responsive to all that you will say, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it becomes very clear as we've read Hebrews, and you may be here for the first time and not have read it with us, and so this is by way of telling you, but we have discovered that the center, the purpose, and the goal of all of history has its focus on the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. If this book has been about anything up to this point, it is about explaining to us who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Each one of those names or titles is fully loaded, packed, full of information. The word Lord, for example, is a divine word. It's the name for the God of Israel, who is repeatedly called the Lord, either Adonai or Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the early Christians called Jesus Lord, fully knowing that they were acknowledging Him in the language of the uh, Apostle Thomas to be their Lord and God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus 
is this human name. There were lots of little boys called Yeshua running around the streets of Palestine at this time in history. Just as there are lots of children called Jesus in another part of the world, not far from here. The word Jesus was a familiar name. This is his name as a fully human, true man. The man Christ Jesus. Christ, on the other hand, is a title. It's the title that combines his work as mediator. That's one of the words that we've found used in this book. Very often, under the guise of the word priest. A priest is someone who relates, stands in the the interface between man on the one hand and God on the other. A mediator stands between two parties. And in the Bible, Jesus Christ is the mediator that stands between humanity in its rebellion against God and the God against whom humanity has rebelled. And he touches both sides because he is both God Lord, and man, Jesus. He is the Lord, Jesus, who is the Messiah, the mediator, the prophet, the priest, and the king of His church. And the author of this book has been teaching us in the passages immediately prior to the one we've read today that everything that came before the arrival of Jesus into the world, everything that came before, this is how he puts it in verse 1, was a shadow of good things to come. A shadow of good things to come. We saw last time that shadows may give good and accurate impressions of an object, but they are not the object. They are a shadow of the object. What the object is the object may be stable and, and firm and permanent. Shadows are unstable and transient. Now, what is important, therefore, is what's called in verse 1 in the ESV, the true form of these realities, the true image that lies, that casts the shadow. That's, that's the fundamental point. And the argument of this book is that the true image that casts the shadow back into the history of Israel is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And what those shadows do, though they're not the real thing, is they give the impression of what is coming in teaching the people in those generations, in those centuries before Christ came, that in order for people to be reconciled to God, there had to be a substitute a sacrifice, and a mediator, a priest, who would act on their behalf. And this is precisely where the author now says this has been fulfilled in the arrival of Christ into the world. Now, if you want to know the flow of the the chapter, it kind of goes like this. It talks about the will of the Trinity. It talks about the work of the Son. It talks about the witness of the Spirit. There's the will of the Trinity. The will of the Trinity is captured in the language of a decree, that is, of a decision, and of a decreed decision. 
It expresses the will of God, and the will of God, the will of God the Holy Trinity, is that He would act on behalf of us, human beings, creatures like us, for our salvation in order that we might share something of their, the life of God in the world to come. He wants to share His love with us. He wants to share His life, eternal life, with us. And so, He put in place, He decreed what would happen in order for that to occur. Not only did He decree it, but we discover that the Trinity is involved in implementing that will. In the action of the Holy Trinity, we have the Father conceiving the human nature that the Lord Jesus would have. We have the Holy Spirit actually forming that human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And we have the Lord Jesus assuming that holy nature at His incarnation we've just celebrated at Christmas. And all of these elements happen not over a period of time with the Father thinking it up and then the Holy Spirit forming it in the womb and then the arrival of Jesus, but rather this action of the Trinity happens in less than a nanosecond. A nanosecond is a small period of time, but we can't even imagine the small period of time that the Holy Trinity implemented this action of forming and then assuming human nature. The Son of God took human nature into union and communion with Himself. That human nature consisted in a rational soul and a physical body. Our souls express themselves through our bodies. We are embodied creatures. That's the way we're made. The angels don't have bodies, but they're creatures nonetheless. We are embodied creatures. In order for us to express what and who we are, we have to use our bodies. Without my hands, as you are well aware in this church, I couldn't speak. Tie me up, and I'd be quiet. That would be the end of it. There'd be no sermons because I couldn't use my hands. Because that's the way we are made. We are made to express who we are through our human bodies. Jesus had all the properties which belong to the whole human nature. He was finite, He was mortal, and He was created. Jesus was created. A creature. The human nature that the Son of God assumed was a completely human nature. Now, that's an amazing thing. So, that's where the will of God starts. Then we look at the work of the Son. When He assumed human nature, the Son of God commenced the task of being a son of Adam. Sometimes in your Bible, you'll see the expression, son of man. The word is Adam, Adam. He still remained what he was in his divine nature. He undertook to be what he was not in human nature. Now, we have to be clear here. And you come here, Fred Sanders, he might not even talk about any of this, but if you can ask him this question, was Liam right when he told you this on Sunday? Uh, so I'm putting myself at risk here. It, it, it is not that the divine nature takes on human nature, because that would change divine nature, and God doesn't change. 
It was the person of the Son of God who assumed human nature so that the Son of God in His humanity had two natures, one fully divine, one fully human, without any overlap. They are the Son's double natures. He had two wills, two operations, divine and human. He, he, he worked in accordance with his human nature. He had, he had human faculties, wisdom, divine wisdom, human wisdom, divine knowledge, human knowledge, divine will, human will, divine power, human power, divine action, human action, divine activity, and human activity. And yet here he is, God with us. God manifested in the flesh of Jesus. The Word made flesh. And it's according to both natures that Jesus is our Savior, our mediator, and the head of the church. As God, he takes the lead. His human nature is his instrument to accomplish our salvation. So that's why we read in verse 9, for example, that the Son of God came to do the will of God. I come to do your will, he says. You notice that the doing of the will is predicated on his coming. Because as God, his will, the Father's will, the Son's will, the Spirit's will are one will. But when he takes on our human nature, he is then putting himself in the position where he has to do what people do. He has to do what you have to do. He has to obey God. That's the way we were made. We were made to obey God. Trains run on tracks. People run on the tracks of the will of God. If, we're, if we want to express our full humanity, we should run on the tracks of doing the will of God. That's where we are freest and fullest as human beings. And in his humanity, as a creature, Jesus committed himself in his humanity to obeying the will of God. In fact, in fact, he's rather excited about it. Behold, he says, I come. Behold, I come. Everybody, look at this. I'm really excited about this. I come to do your will, O God. Why was he coming to do the will of God? Why this contagious joy at taking on our humanity and the Son of God, learning in our humanity what obedience meant by the things that he would suffer? Why is he doing this? The text makes it absolutely clear. He is doing this in order that as our sponsor, you know what a sponsor is? It's a term that's popular in Reformed Orthodoxy. He's our sponsor because he came to assume our debt. Now, wouldn't you like a sponsor like that? Somebody who would come along and say, I'm going to take all your debt. Here's my, che here's, my, here's my check. I'm going to write out a check, and I'm going to assume your debt. Take it. It's mine. Now it's not yours anymore, and I'm going to pay your debt. Jesus is our sponsor. He has come into the world to, to, to act as us, for us, in our place. What's my problem as a believer? If I'm really serious as a Christian, it is that every day I'm finding things that I do or don't do that I, that I shouldn't do or should do. That's, that's my everyday experience, yours too. Jesus comes to obey in our place. He's our sponsor. 
He's our sacrifice. Look at verse 10. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here's the second reason that he came in a body. He came in a body so that as a human nature, as a human being with a human nature, he might be able to act as us. I mean, if uh, a spaceman came, they couldn't do this for you because they would have the nature of whatever planet they're from. The little green men from Mars, they couldn't know what it was like to be human. Only humans know what it's like to be human. My dog thinks she knows what it's like to be human and thinks she can dictate to me, but she can't really. She has no idea what it's like to be human. Jesus takes on our humanity in order that he might act on our behalf in our place and that he might offer his body and sacrifice his body in obedience on the altar of the cross so that he might give to you and I not only his righteousness, but also the life of God, the eternal life of God. And, and the author tells us more about this sacrifice. He says it was a perfect sacrifice. We are sanctified, he says, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Who is sanctified? Well, the whole church is sanctified. The whole believing people of God are sanctified. Both those who came before he came, those who lived before he came, those who lived since he came, like you and, and I. We are with him. We are in him at his death, and we share the value and the worth and the effectiveness of his death. Everything that he did for us benefits us because he is acting for us, with us, in all that he does. It is a perfect sacrifice. And the whole church of God, the whole elect people of God, are, in the language of that word sanctified, set apart, dedicated to God, sequestered, and placed under the... It's as if God puts a ring around his people and says, you are mine, I am yours, and nothing is ever going to change that reality. And thirdly, it was a perfect sacrifice. Sorry, secondly, it was a final sacrifice. Look at the language again. Once for all, that's verse 10. And then in verse 11, the author compares it or contrasts it to the repetitive nature of the religious worship of the Jews under the old covenant. We're told that they offered daily continuously, year by year. Now, I was thinking of this this morning and wondering how I could teach this to you, and I remembered that as a, when I was going through college, every year I would work in an orthopedic ward in a hospital in Glasgow. That was my normal summer work for eight to ten weeks, and uh, one year, I was too late applying for the job, and I got a, had to look around for a job, and I got a job in a brick work. I never want ever to be in a brick work again, but it was uh, good work at the time. And uh, basically, the job was standing in front of a great machine that just stamped out forms of clay, black clay, 
and then spat them out at the unsuspecting recipient, that was me, standing at this machine. They just kept on coming all day long. There was a flatbed thing at the side here. The job was to catch them as they came out, put them there, stack them, put them there, this stuck, stack them. This could go on, by the way. This would, it went on for eight hours every day. Every day. This was my summer job. My hands were in a state of disaster at the end of that job, picking these forms of bricks out. You got half an hour's break. You were at that solidly for half an hour. Then you swapped with another man. Then it was your job to pull that, that flatbed thing out, put another one in its place as quickly as you possibly could so the guy didn't drop any, and then take this out to the kiln where they fired them. And somebody in the kiln had an even better job than me. His job was to be in the kiln. This is Scotland. You'd do anything to be anywhere warm. It was a really warm place. <laughs> take, take, <laughs> take the bricks off that flatbed and put them there to be fired so they come out red in the end. That was the job. All day, every day, all summer long, the dirt got everywhere. I'm not going to go into any details, but it went everywhere. And out they came steadily every day. This was the business of these priests. Do you know under the old economy, whenever you sinned, you had to take a sacrifice. Take it down if you were poor. You took a turtle dove or a pigeon. You took two turtle doves or a pigeon. You took it down to the tabernacle or the temple every day. These guys got up in the morning, and there were lines of people. The correct word is queues. Though there were lines of people waiting, queuing up, waiting with their sacrifices to be done. Every day, those men had to take those animals, kill them. You think of the noise, the noise of the squacking of the, of the, the birds. You think of the, the noise of the animals. You think of the sheer hubbub of people, the mass of people, every day bringing these sacrifices. That was their job every day, again and again and again and again and again till nightfall. Shifts of priests, that was their job. Can you imagine it? The author wants us to have this picture in mind, the repetitiveness of it all. The same thing, day in, day out, day in, day out, not for 10 weeks, but for about 15, 1,600 years. By contrast, Christ appeared, offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. Once for all, only this single sacrifice brought by this one man, who we've learned from Hebrews, knew no sin, was holy, harmless, and undefiled and separated from sinners. Only this sacrifice brought by this man could do the damage to sin. He was sacrificed, offered for all time, for sins, that is sufficient for all sins, any and all and every sin, past, present, and future sins. In this single, final, complete sacrifice, 
all the Jewish ritual sacrifices found their fulfillment. This is what it was all about after all. Ingraining it into the minds of this nation, the Jewish nation, that sin has a, has a penalty, that the wages of sin is death. That God is really serious. It's not just temporal death or the death of an animal or the death of a creature. It is eternal death that is the real threat. And in this very visible, tangible, basic manner, God instills it into the minds of the people so that when Christ comes in the body and he is taken in that human nature and he is skewered to a Roman cross, immobilized, unable to express his humanity, unable to do what people are able to do who are not pinned to a, to a frame like that, immobilized. Jesus is the sacrifice on the altar of Calvary, the one sacrifice that does away with sin and that reconciles us to God. Therefore, he says, it was an effective an effective sacrifice. Through it, we're told, he obtained eternal redemption for us. Here in verse 14, it says, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. The sanctified are those gods put a ring around and said, these are mine. Set them apart for himself. The perfection is God's goal. That's the end game. This is where it's all headed. Perfection. The Greek word is the word telos. Uh, teleology has to do with the end things. This is what is the final goal of God. His goal is for you and for me and for this world, ultimate and complete restoration. Restoration and transformation and glorification by His sacrifice. We will one day be complete, whole people, absolutely whole people, resurrection bodies, like his glorious body. That is the goal. Now, if, let's pause for a moment here. If these ceremonial, religious institutions of the Old Testament were unable by the mere re repetition of the action to deal with the sin issue. Doesn't that same principle apply to you and me if we are trying to deal with the sin issue in our lives in our own strength? Let me take you back to the illustration that I gave you earlier of me and that machine, the brickwork. As those formed bricks are coming out and they're being stacked on the pallet. If you did that to your nose, two of them would be down on your feet. If you were distracted for a moment, several of them would be down on your feet. By the end of the show, there would be this great pile of, of bricks formed clay at your feet. 
what, because even when you were relieving the person and you jumped in, into his place, there were more falling there. They were just piling up and piling up. And here's the thing. If you try, if you try to deal with sin on your own, if you try to deal with the problems in your life on your own, guess what? You're going to miss stuff. It's going to pile up because you can't do it on your own. Giving your attention to your own religious life and your own spiritual life on your own, unassisted by the grace of God, is going to leave you frustrated. That's the reality. That's why we can't earn salvation by good works, because we, we just can't keep up. We can't keep up. We can't deal with all the sins in our lives enough to deal with them. Which is why the gospel, brothers and sisters, men and women, the gospel is good news. It's good news. Look at the way, look at the way it's put in verse 13, verse 12. But when this man, this man, or Christ, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down. He didn't stand all day for 10 weeks or for a lifetime. In one action, he accomplished the salvation of his people. In one action, he bore our sin in his own body on the tree. In one action, he did all that was required for us to have eternal life, and he sat down. That means what? It means he didn't have more work to do in relation to our salvation. He had no more sacrifices to make in relation to our salvation. That doesn't mean that he's inactive today. That doesn't mean that he's not with you when you're under fire in your, in your problems in your life, that he doesn't intercede for you. Of course, he does all of those things. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't need to offer himself again for your salvation. It's all been accomplished. It's all been done. And the words of F.F. F. Bruce, a seated priest is the guarantee of a finished work and an accepted sacrifice. Tis done. The great transaction's done. Jesus, and all in him, is mine. Well, this Lord who sat down is now exalted. Verses 12 and 13, he sat down at the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. He'd always been with God and was God. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, John tells us he saw Jesus' glory. But here is the man, Christ Jesus. Here is the Christ, the mediator. And it's as the man, Christ Jesus, as the mediator, that he sits down in heaven. The Lord Jesus, as Jesus, sits down in heaven, as it were, and shares the rule over the church, what we call his mediatorial rule. That is, the way he's ruling the world just now. For the sake of his church, he does that, but one day that will stop. Why will it stop? One day 
the man Christ Jesus will deliver that over to God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, because it will be no, no longer necessary. We will all be home on that day. Everything that holds us back will be done for. The sin that cries out from our consciences will be, will be eliminated on that day. On that day, we will no longer struggle with our own nature. We will no longer struggle with the world system. We will no longer struggle with the devil. On that day, we will be free, free at last. Thank God, the Lord Almighty, we'll be free at last. And so, the author comments from verse 15 very quickly that this has been witnessed to in the Holy Scriptures. This is what the Scripture meant when it promised that there would be a new covenant, that God would so work in His people's lives that He would put His laws in their hearts and write them in their minds, and that He would remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. People must have wondered about that. People living in the days when the priests were doing all this stuff, they must have thought, when will he forget? When will he deal with it? I mean, tomorrow I'm going to have to go back down there because I had a lustful thought today, so I'm going to have to go back down there and offer another sacrifice. When will this be dealt with? And the witness of the Holy Spirit is that that's dealt with. Right now, I will remember their sin no more. Not only that, but God has begun a business, a work in us that will be complete one day when we're with Him in glory, but that has started right now by putting His law on our hearts and writing them on our minds. In other words, He has begun the business in His people by the new birth of changing us, transforming us, the Word of God is meant to help us understand that. The Word of God is meant to wash our minds and, and to give us handles on how we can increasingly be conformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. But He's begun this work already. It will be finished when Jesus comes again, but it's begun already in you. The forgiveness of sins and the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to resist sin, to say no to sin, to overcome sin, to confess sin, to get beyond it. Not ultimately not to be able to, but, but to, to overcome the impulse to sin on an ongoing basis, day by day, day by day, moment by moment situation. Let me put it like this. Today we are not in a state of glory. That's still to come. But we are today in a season of grace. There's grace from God, generosity from God, good gifts from God, gift of salvation, gift of the Holy Spirit. And on this day, beloved brothers and sisters, through the Word of God, God is giving you the grace, the power and the help you need to live for Him in the world. There's the grace of forgiveness for those of you who are not Christians. 
The grace of reconciliation to God. And for those of us who are Christians, there is the grace of strength for each day. The grace by His help to pick ourselves up when we fall, to confess our sins to Him, and then to move forward in His providence and for His glory. This is a season of grace. God's calling to us, brothers and sisters, to lean heavily into that grace, to rest upon it, to be sure of it by trusting in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great and awesome work that the Lord Jesus did for us, bringing an end to that sacrificial system And ultimately, it did end in AD 70, finally, under the Romans, and has never been reopened, because Jesus finished it effectively on the cross. When the curtain was torn in two, and the the way of access to you, our Father, was opened once for all, once and for all, oh, brother, believe it. Once and for all, O sister, receive it. Christ has redeemed you once for all. Help us to rest in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.